Welcome to the Dental Amigos podcast with Dr. Paul Goodman and attorney Rob Montgomery, taking you behind the scenes of the dental business world, all the things you didn't learn in dental school but wish you had. Rob is not a dentist and Paul is not a lawyer, but since Rob is a lawyer, we need to tell you that this podcast is for informational purposes only and shouldn't be considered legal advice. Listening to this podcast does not and will not create an attorney-client relationship. As is always the case, you should formally consult with legal counsel before proceeding with any legal matter. Learn more about The Dental Amigos at www.thedentalamigos.com. And now, here are The Dental Amigos. Welcome, amigo. Hello, Rob. It's always, it's always fun to have the uh, the head nacho in the house. Uh, today, we are going to talk about associate agreements. One of my favorite topics. Yeah, ours too. We deal with them a lot in uh, similar fashions, coming out from different places. So let's talk a little business, a little clinical, and a little legal. So let's start off with something that's really kind of broad in general, Paul. When should you consider hiring an associate? It's, it's a great question because I think all dentists think about that even when they first start a practice. I mean, I think there's a desire to a lot of times have another dentist working with you uh, before you can truly identify if you have a need or a want really for it. So that's when I uh, coach dentists and talk with dentists who are mature in their practices, been doing it for a long time. I need, they really need to identify, do they want an associate or do they need an associate? And I think that that's the first step. What's the difference, Paul? Difference is, it's, it's a good question, and I, I come at this a lot from working with young dentists who get asked to come into practices, and a lot of times with good intentions, but simply, it's rare for a dental practice to magically have enough work to bring in another dentist out of the blue. So what happens is, I will talk with a young dentist who says to me, I've been asked to be an associate in this practice, and they said they could wait until I'm finished my residency in seven months, and I can come in and work with them three days a week. And I say, that sounds great, but what are they going to do from now until the seven months you can't get there? They say, oh, well, they're busy, their schedule's booked out. And I think a lot of times dentists really need to analyze it in a different way than how they've approached a lot of their business decisions with they're the king of their castle, they can decide what they want, they want new materials, they want to be closed on Saturdays, they want to be open on Saturdays, they don't really need to ask anyone. But when you first, when you think about bringing in another dentist, you really have to analyze it from a numbers perspective. Right, right. And we see that, too. A lot of times when we're talking to young associates, we'll you know, say to them, you know, is there an associate in that practice now? Great and question. And they'll yeah. say no. And then, that, that, and then I, well, where are the patients going to come from? I have, you like, know? you know, sometimes polls, three questions I can ask, and I can tell you yes or no, is this a good opportunity or not? And uh, the first question is, is there already an associate in the practice? And if the answer is yes, it's already a good answer, because if they are moving to Texas because their wife got a job with a big insurance company, that's a great answer because there's already patients that that dentist is seeing. The answer is no, and it's my first associate. It's going to be a learning experience for both parties. And a lot of times, you know, I don't want to paint the owner dentist in a way that they're not trying to be truthful or honest. Sometimes they just don't recognize how much dental work you actually need to bring in a whole other dentist into your practice. Right. Right, so good intentions, but maybe not good planning. Yeah, I mean, small little tips that an owner dentist can look at is, you know, can they can they provide that associate dentist with $2,000 worth of production a day? Sometimes people will say, well, that's just a crown and a half. But remember, these patients don't know this new associate. It's going to take a while for them to trust them. So a lot of times they're building their schedule with less productive procedures, and you need a lot more of those. And in, in our experience, we've had, my brother and I brought in uh, three associates over the past two years, and... We start them out with doing a lot of hygiene visits, and I think that's a great way to meet the patients. 
but you also need to have enough patients for them to see for these cleaning visits. So it's a, it's a more complex thing than both the associate dentist and owner dentist really understand going into it. Right. I almost feel like in some respects, if it's impossible to offer an associate a full-time position if you don't already have an associate yeah, there. Yeah, right? very true. And one of the things that's challenging in today's dental economy or dental world is that it's not easy to find multiple part-time jobs. So in, in previously, even when I graduated from dental school in 2002, mo most of my friends would get easily get two two-day-a-week jobs with two different solo practitioners, and they could provide them with a decent schedule on those two days. And it was actually a great experience for them. They were learning two different business models. They were learning two different practice styles. But nowadays, it's a lot of all or none. I mean, there's not an opportunity many times for an associate dentist to work only two days a week in a practice. And most of our listeners will get a lot of different listeners or it might be general dentists. And in general dental world, you're doing a lot of different procedures. So if you're my patient, Rob, and I'm only there on Mondays, you know, that's, a t that's already, that's a difficult thing because you can only see me on Mondays and that might not fit into your schedule. Right, that's a good point. Is one thing you mentioned a few minutes ago, Paul, how do you deal with the fact that the patients don't know this associate? Now, you know, Dr. Jones for the first time is, is there and treating with this patient. Let's say it's a practice where, you know, someone's been solo for 15 years. Is there, you know, any, do you have any recommendations or suggestions as to how to, to transition that relationship over I mean, to the new doc? That's a great question. One of the biggest challenges because the, what dentists do with their patients is they really develop these long-term relationships with them and they're used to seeing the same face every time. But now this dentist is in his 50s, let's say, and he wants a little more time off and he's going to bring someone in. But who is going to see these, these patients? What step one is to look for procedures that the owner dentist does not do or even just pretends they don't do in the sense where I was lucky enough when I went in with my dad he would have me do all the night guards in the practice which is a fairly simple procedure but he would just tell the patients that Paul does the night guards and it was actually just a great thing because they the were night guard yeah, specialist, night guard specialist. he said that it was yeah, very, yeah. but it was really smart of him it's great promotion because yeah. he knew that nothing was really going to go wrong with doing a night guard by dentist listening, knowing it's a fairly simple procedure to execute because that's what also the patients are on guard for too, which is very funny. My using my own dad as an example, we had a long-term patient where uh, he had a very difficult extraction to do, and my dad did a lot of extractions, and I actually even encouraged my dad to refer this extraction out, but he said, "I'm going to do it. This is a guy I like. This guy, I'm going to do this." And it, it took him over an hour to get the tooth out. And I walked into the room at the end and the patient who liked him said, you know, your dad's still undefeated. He can get any tooth out, right? <laughs> but if it was me and I took an hour, the patient would have the perception that basically I'm incompetent. And that's a real problem. You know, what's interesting is patient's perception of competence is totally unfair sometimes because even now with my younger associates, they are actually trying really hard and sometimes just taking extra steps to make sure the procedure goes well but the patient and sometimes the staff, which is important too, if they're running behind or taking longer than what they expect, they, they think something's going wrong. And that's difficult because in no other service industry, which I just think is, is, is no, no one ever gets their hair cut and says to the guy or the woman, uh, could you rush through this as fast as possible? <laughs> you, you would be upset. But in the dental world, I think because people just don't want to be there, they perceive if you're taking your time, it's right. not going well, but it actually could be going extra well. Right. Because you know, so that, that's a real challenge for young associates because they come from a dental school world, which is a learning environment, a residency world, and no one really t teaches them how to be efficient. And it's, that's another challenge because old Doc Smith, like you said, does a filling in 10 minutes 
a new Dr. Lisa might take 50 minutes, but many times, and, and it, old Doc Smith would uh, agree, new Dr. Lisa's filling is better than his. Right. She's more into it. I mean, she's, she's only on her couple first hundred of doing them. He's done thousands. And, and, the, and the, the concept of better or worse, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a subjective I mean, they're probably all totally acceptable, totally acceptable dental work, but that's not an easy thing to do. So getting the team and the patients on board with seeing a new person or a new dentist is, is a real hurdle. So, so there you go. You know, so I asked you initially about transitioning the patients or getting the patients comfortable with the, the new associate. But you, you said this, how about staff? So that's, that's a factor too, right? It, we, do, we, did a, we put in an entire protocol when we have a new associate come where they come observe the practice, they don't do any work. I introduce the concept of them coming to the practice of the staff. I tell them about the background. We have meetings about the associate, tell them, you know, I've been fortunate enough to have had, um, been able to train or teach our associates. So I, I can say, hey, this is someone that I've worked with before, but many dentists cannot. And they sometimes will not give that part enough e true effort and it gets the whole process started in the wrong direction because this, if the staff isn't behind the associate, uh, then it's a total failure because when that person goes to the front and says, is Dr. Kelly good at doing a crown? The staff will say, oh, she's great. She did it on the patients last week. They like what she does. If they give an answer that sometimes can be genuine, I mean, it's, we're not here to lie to the patients, but mm -hmm. they have to be coached in a way that we're gonna present it to this way because the staff is a benefit to the staff to have an associate, because a lot of times they can work more hours. The staff tends to trend younger, so let's say Doc Smith doesn't want to work Saturdays, but a bunch of young single moms want to work Saturdays. Well, now the associate can be there on Saturdays, but they have to put, I mean, I actually make this joke about dentistry all the time. It's like putting on a Broadway play that nobody wants to see. You know, I mean, it's very true, and it really is. It's a whole play that you got to, you know, get up for every single day, and the, and the associate, at the end of the day, in these offices, the dentist, whether it's the owner, Doc Smith, or the associate, they're the key cog in this whole operation because you can have a great front desk, a great assistant team, a great hygienist, but if you don't have that dentist on board with the rest of them, it's like uh, sort of like in the NFL football, the quarterback being off key with everyone. Right. So Yeah, that, that, good points, Paul. And, you know, what I kind of hear overall, too, it's like a lot of things. You know, doing something in a purposeful, mindful way, guess what? It pays off. And I think there are probably a lot of people that just sort of bump through and decide, hey, I'm just going to hire somebody. I don't really know if it's the right time. And you know, I'm not really going to help them you know, be help with the transition with the staff or transition with the patients. And then two months later, wow, that was a failure. I, right. I, I don't know why. You know, I, I did absolutely nothing to facilitate the success there. One, one thing before I ask you into some of the legal stuff is that it's such an important point to recognize that the owner looking to hire an associate at any stage of their career, that could be 40 years old like me or 65 years old, it is going to be a tremendous amount of work on them as the dentist. I mean, I'm used to going into my office, doing what I do, implants, whatever I do, just breezing through my day. Things go awry, but in general, no one's following me around. I don't have to be accountable to anyone. I and mean, as soon as you bring in an associate, you're going to have someone looking over your shoulder, someone asking you a lot of questions. All these things can be great things. They can be learning, they can be learning geared, um, but it takes a lot of time and energy. And it's a different muscle that you have to exercise that most dentists don't ever exercise. So that's one of the things that I help, like, love to help coach dentists on that, incorporating an associate, because two parties... It, in some ways, it's like um, it's like being a dating coach. I mean, it's like you know, two parties have the best of intentions, but they have different expectations, and no one teaches. Again, like a lot of things in our podcast, these are things that no one teaches or tells you about in dental school, and it's a um, 
that I say to my associates, you know, you're front and center. So if you buy, if you get a new mechanic to work on cars at your auto body shop, the customer may, may never even know that that mechanic is there. But if you get a new dentist to work in your practice, they're front and center in front of your customers. And that's just, that's just a whole different layer of complexity. Right. Um, so important. And I think, you know, too, you said it's a different muscle. And I think, I find, and this is where our professions are, are similar. You know, I have uh, a professional practice just like you. And I think it's easy as a professional to just get wired into that mode of practicing your profession and not thinking about your business, the HR issues. Right. You know, we can sort of lose ourselves in, in the practice of what we of what we do. Yeah, it's very and common. It's nice. You know, you can just zone out and just be a lawyer. Yeah, zone right. out, just be a dentist. And I'm not going to worry about what's going on with all those people that work for me and all these people right. yeah. that come to my practice. Yeah. And, and that doesn't really pay off too well in the long run. There's a lot of dentists in here, which is, you know, it's totally unfair to this position. They'll say, you know, well, my office manager will just handle it. I mean, the A, they usually haven't given their office manager the tools or resources to handle it. And B, especially with what we're talking about today, hiring an associate, it's a clinically oriented endeavor. So the, the dentist who's doing the dentisting is not really a word, but doing the dentisting really needs to grab hold of it and be involved in that training. Your office manager can train someone to answer the phone. Your office manager can train people, even train the hygienist and how we check out the patients and do things like that. But when you're hiring your associate general dentist, that's an all, it's a really big effort from the own, owner dentist. So sometimes I encourage owner dentists or, or tell them like, now's not the right time in your life to do this. And right. while they want to have every other Friday off, sometimes it's a total disaster to bring in an associate just with that in mind. So I want to ask you, Rob, because you've been such a good resource for me and my residents and uh, my team in terms of the legal aspects, if you're an employer looking to bring in an associate, from a legal perspective, what are some of the things you should consider? I think it's important to have a written agreement. Um, there's sort of this, uh, and it's kind of going by the wayside, thankfully, that's sort of this old school mentality of, oh, we can do this on a handshake. We don't need an, an agreement. And I think that's a big mistake uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, first, um, when you have an agreement, the parties know and their expectations are reduced to paper. I know what I'm supposed to do, you know what you're supposed to do, and generally that, that's a good formula for a productive relationship. Uh, when you do something on a handshake and you don't cover all the, 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 the nuts and bolts of what that relationship is, then two people could have a very different expectation as to what somebody's supposed to be doing. And guess what? That's when you end up in a dispute. But you know, so it's really important to have a written agreement. And right. I think in that written agreement, one of the key things, obviously, is compensation, you know, how, how they're going to be paid and when. But it's really important to have restrictive covenants, covenants not to compete and non-solicitation covenants. What about the concept that, you know, when I, 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 on these Facebook groups, which I love being a part of, Dental Nachos, Hacks on Dental Transitions, and I brought up these polls and questions a number of times, and uh, they will say things like, you know, restrictive covenants not enforceable, or that, you know, these agreements uh, don't mean anything. Uh, in your experience, when has that come back to bite a dentist on either end, maybe the employer or the associate? Well, from an employer standpoint, it's really, really key to have them because when it comes time to sell your practice, a potential buyer would possibly like to see that there's a, uh, a restrictive covenant. And in fact, that could kill a deal. Um, nobody wants to buy a practice where half of the goodwill is with an associate and that associate could go across right. the street, hang out a shingle and steal all the yeah. patients. So that's one of those no good deeds goes unpunished. Right. You know, well, I'm not going to require that. You know, and then when your suitors come to look at your practice, right. like, well, why, why are you giving me 80% of what my buddy got yeah, you right. know, with a similar practice? Well, because you were the nice guy that didn't require anybody to have a restrictive covenant. 
from an employee standpoint, you know, it's, you have to look at that and sure, they may not be enforceable, but the only way you find out whether restrictive covenant is enforceable is if there's a trial, essentially. Right. And to get there, it's a very expensive process that associates can't afford uh, to, to fight. And if, even if it's a crazy, unreasonable non-compete, uh, a bank is not going to give an associate financing to either buy a practice or do a startup in the area that's restricted. Even if you said, hey, I'm in Philadelphia and there's a 50-mile non-compete, there's no way that'll ever be enforceable. I agree. Probably no judge right. would enforce that. However, Bank of America is not going right. to give you yeah. a loan, you know, because no, no, no lender wants to give you money for you just to, uh, for the sheriff to show up on the grand opening and, and, and shut the place what down. What I think is important, and you mentioned there is, you know, because doing the transitions and uh, working with buyers and sellers, and, and you know just as well, there's so many things that can derail the momentum of any of these deals from, you know, the looking at a practice to buying it, that having a monkey wrench of a restrictive covenant can just be a challenge for the broker to deal with, the seller to deal with, and sometimes can lose you the opportunity to even really look at a practice. Absolutely. Yeah. And then what you also find, you know, if you are a seller selling a practice where you have associates without restrictive covenants, you've just given your associates a seat at the table in those, in those negotiations. Because now, a potential buyer might say, yeah, I'm going to buy this practice and I'll pay X for it, but it's conditioned on these associates agreeing to employment agreements with restrictive yeah. covenants. Now, all of a sudden, they have a seat at the table, you know, and you're trying to sell your practice and there's somebody else that's got their own financial interest that they're trying to advance, right. you know, the associate. And as you said, uh, sometimes it doesn't take much to derail a deal. Um, that's, that's one that, that can do it. I mean, I would say as a transitions broker myself, if I have two or three people looking at it, one is a restrictive covenant issue, they already go to third in line because I just know that what what I've learned in doing transitions is that there's just so many steps to get these things done, and you know there's mul you know in good practices there can be multiple parties interested, and I, it's not that I wouldn't give someone a fair shake at the practice. I just would tell them up front that it's going to be a challenge, and sometimes there's somewhat of a race amongst the potential buyers to get everything together. I've been in that race myself, and getting everything together to buy a practice is is a lot of work and effort, even for an experienced dentist like myself and who's bought practices. So I think, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but, you know, the ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure because I know you see people asking you to fix these things afterwards and sometimes they're pretty much unfixable, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. You know, and, and we say to ourselves, wow, if they would come to us at the outset, we really could have prevented I'm glad you situation. said that they come to you because I'm personally interested in this. Who, who in maybe you could say 50-50, 70-30, in terms of owners coming to you to write an agreement for that you like I have in my practices or buyers coming to you to review review an agreement that's written uh, is there times where there's no one has an agreement at all and the buyer might say okay Rob and his team Justin we need you to do this for the both of us uh, how many times have these owners where do they get their it's better way of asking where do they get their employment contracts to give to their new associates I think a variety of places. I mean, it's interesting. We see the whole spectrum of sophistication when it comes to, to legal documents. So some people may have gone to a lawyer at the outset and it's a well-prepared document. Some people may have gone to a lawyer and gotten a lousy document. Some people may have printed something off the internet. Some people may have taken a document that their buddy used in a different practice and changed right. the names around. 
And so we see the whole gamut of, of quality and sophistication with uh, employment agreements. And I think there's a tendency sometimes I, when I look on some of the, uh, the Facebook uh, boards, it's, you know, people think that, and obviously I'm a lawyer, so uh, I'm a little biased when I say this, that the lawyer's role is strictly that of a scrivener. You know, hey, I can put together an agreement, I can plug in the names, I can find a form, and um, so do I really need a lawyer? You know, all a lawyer does right, is yeah. just put this stuff on paper. Right. And yeah, that's part of what we do, but the other part is to counsel clients and to talk to them about what their objectives are and what's important to them and, and why it's important to have certain things in the agreement and, and what certain consequences are going to result if you use certain provisions or don't. And if you just pull a document off the internet, generally speaking, that doesn't come with that. Yeah, I, I, I can't agree with you more. I've, I've dealt with you and your own team in doing that. It's been helpful to me in building my own organization because that's some of the real value in that learning why these provisions are in the contract. And then as the owner dentist, the relationship is between the owner and the associate. And you know, Rob Montgomery and his team may never talk to that group again. They may talk to them in a few years when they buy a practice, but you're there for that moment when you put the people together. But it's the job of me to be able to explain a lot of this to the person I'm working with every single day. Right. So if they say to me, why does it say that I pay 35% of my lab bill? That's a, that's a relatively simple one that I can handle. I'm going to be able to handle that. But if it says to me, why can I not market in this manner within seven miles, then I'll have a good answer when you and your team have coached me. And, and I think a lot of times what I hope people are listening to out there is you're likely on both ends, and I say this all the time in my lectures, I'm 40 years old. I graduated from dental school uh, 15 years ago. I have a whole great group of friends. Let's just say there's 15 of us. Only one of them out of the 15 is at the position they are at when they left their residency program. So that means 14 others have traveled through this world, different states, different agreements, different jobs. Now they're all practice owners. But on both sides, you know, the expression, it's not your first rodeo, this is going to come, uh, come up again, whether you're an owner hiring an associate again or an associate getting another job. So I think it's just so valuable to get some of this information up front on your first deal. And I think, again, as I know, I'll probably repeat this throughout the podcast, there's not one time in our entire dental school education or even our residency education that anyone really mentions any of this. And it's arguably one of the most important things we, we have to deal with on both ends. Right, for sure. You know? And a lot of times when we do presentations, you know, we, we talk about our concept of contractual awareness. You know, it's, it's so important to understand what you're signing up for. And there are different levels of it. You know, there's the first, which is understanding what it means and just the plain meaning of the document. But what you don't have appreciation for, which is this is what you're talking about, when you're doing this for the first time, or even the second or third time, or what are the potential consequences consequences of not uh, of not having certain things or agreeing to certain I things? I think, it, and that brings us up to because I just saw this post the other day on one of the dental hacks or dental nachos, and it was a great you know real life example. So someone, there was a dentist working for a corporate dental office and they had found out that he was going to open his own practice, so they terminated him, okay, so, and they wanted to bring in someone who was going to be, you know, loyal to the DSO. And he was asking, hey, now they're not paying me my, what I'm due, are they supposed to pay me, what are my, what are my, you know, what actions can I take? And then, you know, dentists are chiming in, as dentists do, in, in good intention ways, well, you take them to small claims court, you do this, could you tell me a little bit about this, you know, for cause termination without cause and tell us a little bit about that because I think it's very important because as a dentist, you know, 
and if you're reading these message boards, this is happening with a high degree of frequency, whether they're changing jobs, being terminated, uh, sometimes not even termination. They leave voluntarily but never get paid. So maybe you could uh, enlighten us a little bit about that. Well, most uh, employment agreements should have a, uh, a term, which means the length of time that the, the employee is going to be employed. But from the employer standpoint, you definitely need to have provisions that allow you to terminate the employer, uh, employee sooner. Um, you don't want a situation where you're giving guaranteed employment, and occasionally we will see that. And sometimes it's when we're reviewing an associate agreement, and uh, if somebody says, take a look at this contract, and we'll look and say, they're agreeing to hire you for the next five years, and really can't fire you for any reason. Let's not push too far yeah, right, on this yeah, agreement, right, because yeah. you've got a really yes, good thing yes. here, yeah, you know? Right, yeah. Let's prioritize what's really, you know, what's really important. So you need the ability and some kind of mechanism to uh, to terminate somebody uh, if you if you want to or need to and what it really comes down to is from an employee standpoint an employer can't make you work right. you know there's even if there's a provision in there that says that you agree to work for two years if you decide you're going to leave no court is going to say no no right. you must go back to your yeah, job right. that you yeah. hate where everybody's mean to you <laughs> yeah, right. um, but if there's a term in the agreement that says that the employee has to be employed for two years well it, it's not reciprocal. Right, the, yeah. the employer has to keep them right. there, otherwise they're on the hook. So you really, you really have to be careful. And it's just, uh, it's a matter of understanding what's in an agreement and why it's there. And a lot of times, you know, when in employment agreements or any contract, we'll have our clients that are talking to the other side and they think that they're going to cut the lawyers out and, and they're gonna streamline the, 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 the process and they'll come back and say, well, guess what? I, we agreed to these three things, and I agreed to take that out. And we'll say, well, do you realize what can happen if you right, took that yeah, provision right. out? Oh, wow, I never thought about that. I'm like, well, that's, that's kind of what we, right, that's yeah, what we right, do yes, here. Yeah, you yeah, know? We're, yeah. we're not just putting words on paper. We're thinking about the consequences you know, down the road years from now, sometimes 20 years from yeah, now, no, I think so when you're going to sell your practice. Right? This yeah. is going to be a problem. We're thinking about that today instead of 20 years from now because then it's too late. And I think one thing you touched on there, we could talk about how you find associates, but you know, when you have a dental-focused attorney like you were a team on board and on the other side too, you're just, you're just not emotionally wrapped up in the scenario. And I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's probably a, another cliche, cliche, thing, cliche thing to say, but it's not, you're not going to be part of this after the agreement's done. So you can look at it in an objective fashion and give people really just good feedback and advice because you're not going to be working at this place. So even though they want to work for their childhood dentist who promised him that they were going to work at this practice, even though the <laughs> childhood dentist has never done more than $400,000 a year, and right. even though he's never shown any ability to have more than a one dentist practice, he promised you that you're going to work there back in your hometown when you come back. But then he realized that his retirement fund didn't go as well as he thought, or his wife still wants to keep be working, and now you're stuck. Like what happened to the magic, right? Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's important to have people like you. And I think what I want to get across in this podcast and some of the posts I do is it's important to develop relationships with advisors early on in your career. It doesn't even have to be one where you engage them on an official level, but just to know that they're, they're there, whether it's a transitions broker, a dental-focused attorney, a bank, an accountant, because a lot of times they, these young dentists and sometimes uh, owners are scrambling at the last minute, and that always just causes chaos, confusion, challenges. And um, I think dentists would understand this. You know, if you had someone who you constantly recommended 10 crowns to every time they came in, and then they came in 
on Friday, July 1st and said, well, I need this done by Friday, July 5th. You say, well, I have other things going on. I can't get it done at this time. So I think that happens to dentists a lot of times. And I think as you know, we go into some of finding associates, that, that circle of dental training and education is that, and I say this a lot, like right now is October and someone did just ask me to find them an associate. And I did find one in my magic bag. I got her. They're, <laughs> pulled they're her out. Yeah, I pulled, pulled it out because I kept in, in my emails and mine. I say, I know when someone's disgruntled. I know when someone's looking for a job and I, it, what, a light bulb went off. But now it's actually a very difficult time to find an associate because it's all the residency programs are in progress. All the dental schools are in progress. So, you know, I tell owner Dennis, uh, the time to think about this is January 1st of each year, shooting for June 30th, because then you have a six-month time frame to really dial in what you want, what you need. And then when July 1st comes, that's when these general practice residents and AEGD residents are going out into the quote-unquote dental real world, and they'll be looking for jobs, and that's when you can connect with them. But during these downtimes, let's say, of let's October through March, there's a lot of times not a lot of associates on the market for them to, uh, to find. Interesting. That's a great point, Paul. Thanks for listening to another great podcast with the Dental Amigos. And don't forget to tune in next time to have the dental business demystified. If you're looking for more information about today's podcast, you can find it on the dentalamigos.com. If you're looking for Paul, you can find Paul at drpaulgoodman.com. And if you're looking for Rob, you can find him at yourdentallawyer.com. This podcast has been sponsored by Orange Line Media Group, helping dentists and other professionals create content people love. Find out how we can help you take your business to the next level at www.orangelinemg.com. Till next time.